0: We, uh, we have a, a very overqualified person running sound for me today. Uh, don't tell anyone that there's a, there's a... Oh, my gosh. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear
1: Amy. Happy birthday to you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was it was a lot of fun Saturday. I woke up at 3:15 in the morning. Doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> to make sure my daughter was up to do her hair and makeup because we had to leave at five for a show choir a competition in uh, Firth, Nebraska. Firth is a beautiful little town. No, actually, we never saw Firth. Norris High School is just outside of Firth, but uh, and uh, yeah, they did really really well, especially for teenagers performing at 8 a.m. Which still don't know why they gave us that time slot, but hey. Uh, they did really, really well, and it's fun, and I love being a show choir mom. Never knew I would, but I do. I'm going to miss it. I'm trying to talk Lane into going out for choir or, or being in choir, signing up for choir next year so he can be in show choir. I'm not getting anywhere. <laughs> he, says, he says he'll play hooky if, if I make him sing in choir, so it's not happening, but, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, do you have any questions this morning? Yes, Emily. Okay. That's okay. Right. What evidence does James give that the tongue is set on fire by hell? Which my entire existence is evidence of that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I will I will touch on that. Uh, toward the end of the lesson. Any any other questions? Well, let's pray. Father God, um, I just thank you so much for this little letter of James um, that uh, was tucked away in the New Testament, almost didn't even make it, and, and yet it is, and it is inspired by your Holy Spirit. And um, is God-breathed, and it has uh, breathed so much into my own life. Into uh, my own life, it's breathed truth and um, conviction uh, and just um, a sense of of your calling. And so, Father, I I thank you for that. I thank you for this book. I pray that I would teach it faithfully today in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So, James 3, 1 through 12, as you may have noticed is all about the tongue (laughs) yay great you know hey nothing convicting in that is there uh but it's been a it's been a good uh a good 12 verses to really uh dig into so we're going to begin by just reading all 12 of them uh, and then go back through and kind of parse it a little more closely so beginning with uh james 3 1 through 12. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So I just, I I quit, is what... (laughs) No, I'm kidding. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are still steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest fire, forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a whole world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James, tell us what you're really thinking. Huh? Uh, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been, and have been tamed by mankind. produce fresh water. So what a a passage this is, how much vivid imagery James uses here. But it is connected to what has come before. Obviously, probably the most obvious connection uh, is in James 1, where James talks about the tongue as well. And he says, if anyone considers themselves to be religious but cannot keep a tight rein on his tongue, his religion is useless. And then he goes on to say religion that our father considers pure and faultless is this, to care for widows and orphans in distress and keep from being polluted by the world. Well, certainly using our tongues in a way that glorifies God is a uh, very clear example of true religion, of not being polluted by the world. But it's also connected to the teaching just preceding it, On our deeds. And remember, James said, don't just hear God's word, do it. You say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by what I do. And as one theologian put it, words are works. Um, The way we speak is part of our offering of work to God. Choosing to respond to someone with gracious words rather than angry words is a righteous deed. Speaking truth and life and encouragement into someone's difficult situation is a righteous deed. Now, part of the debate about this passage is the question, to whom was this written? And uh, there are two choices. Some theologians say that the entire passage, the entire 12 verses, is really about church leaders, and their use of speech. While it may have some application for the average parishioner, it is primarily intended to speak to church leaders. Other theologians say that this this passage, while it it may have some application to leaders, and he begins by talking about teachers, it is primarily for all believers. It's primarily written to anyone who is a follower of Christ. I think the latter is true. I believe that this passage was written, it's it's universally applicable. It's it's written for all the believers. And I believe that for several reasons. The first one is this James doesn't say, not many of you should become leaders. He isn't speaking to leaders, he's speaking to teachers. And so, and teachers may or may not be leaders. I, you know, I'm an example. I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm not a leader in the church. I'm just a teacher. So uh, it isn't necessarily about leaders. Um, but the second thing is that the problem of sinful, critical speech is really universal. It isn't just a problem for teachers. It isn't just a problem for leaders. Um, it's, it's a problem for all of us. And it was likely a problem for the churches to whom James was writing. And truthfully, it's a problem for any church to some degree or another because we're all, as my friend says, dirty, rotten sinners deserving hell. And uh, we all have trouble controlling our tongues. That's James's point. Um, but the other reason, and probably the most important reason, I believe that this is, a, this is intended for the entire body, Um, of Christ, ironically, I'm about to give an example using that word body, is that to make the interpretation fit for it being just for leaders, the meanings of some words need to be changed to make them less obvious or, or, or to make them more unnatural. Let me give you an example. In um, verses one and two, or in, in, in verse two, it says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now, that word body is soma, and it almost always means physical body. So what, what James is saying here, the most obvious interpretation of what James is saying is the tongue is the hardest part of the body to control. If you can control your tongue, you can control anything else in your body because this is the hardest part. So, you know, if you can, if you can run a marathon, you can run a 5K, right? It would be, it'd be easy to do. And so he, that's the obvious interpretation of this. But those who say that what James is doing is writing to leaders in the whole passage, they, may, they turn that word body to mean the body of Christ, not our physical body. And so then what James is saying is that any leader that can keep control, keep a rein on his tongue, can help control and lead his entire congregation. To me, that's a more natural sort of interpretation of this passage, and and in fact, as, as Dr. Moo puts it, James doesn't give us any indication in here that he has some sort of metaphorical understanding of these verses in mind. They they really do seem really very literal, and so I think um, I think that that the the or spiritual application I should say I, I think that this passage is intended for all of us, uh, and I know it certainly applies to all of us. Um, so
1: <clears throat>
0: excuse me. Um, so verses one and two then. He speaks directly to teachers. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is an, who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So why does James single out teachers here? I mean, what's the th- deal with teachers? Well, there's several reasons why he may be doing that. First of all, it's, it's a really good jumping off point to talk about, to discuss the tongue in general or words in general. Because let's face it, teachers talk a lot. I mean, it's just what we do. We can't do what we do without it. Um, One of my favorite speakers and authors is Tim Kimmel, and and he once said that anyone who has, and I can say this as if it were me because it's true of me too, anyone who has as many words to say as I do uh, of necessity must have also a lot of recipes for crow. Because the more we say, the more likely we are to say something we shouldn't say. So secondly, James um, also is talking about teachers because teachers do have influence even power over other people. And teachers need to wield that influence with care and with godly discernment. But why discourage teaching? Everybody, you know, when I, was, when I told people I was an education major when I was in college, all kinds of teachers would be go, oh baby, you don't want to do that. I, I can't tell you the number of times I was told, don't become a teacher. And I'm like, Man, you must be a lousy teacher if you don't even like doing it. I've never done that to someone who's going into education. I've said, that's great. You'll love being a teacher. Why discourage people from becoming teachers? Well, in the first place, and probably the most important thing, that teachers in the church are given the task of explaining the gospel of Christ. And that is a sacred trust. That is something that should, that is, or at least should be, an awesome thing. Something that invokes a holy fear. In fact, Paul told Timothy to guard what had been entrusted to him carefully. Guard it carefully. The privilege, and it is a privilege, of teaching the gospel should be approached with reverent fear and extraordinary care. Um, but secondly, I think one reason why um, James discouraged teaching, discouraged too many people from becoming teachers, is that teachers do have considerable prestige. In James's day, where the society was largely illiterate, where many people couldn't read, teachers had great prestige. These learned people who could read the scrolls and interpret them, the rabbis in Judaism, had great prestige. But even in our literate society, this is true. Uh, Katie and I were supposed to go to New York in early January. We didn't. It's a long story. But we were going to be there on a Sunday, and how exciting was that? She wanted to go to Hillsong, New York City. I wanted to go to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I'm sure that that those of you who know that Redeemer Presbyterian Church is Tim Keller's church are very surprised by that. Redeemer Presbyterian Church, we were going to go to both, by the way, uh, different services. But anyway... um, The uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church has several campuses, and they never announce at which one, if any, Tim Keller will be preaching. Why? Because that's where everyone would flock. No one would go to the other campuses. They all want to hear Tim Keller. There is great prestige in being a teacher, especially one that is known. Today's star preachers, um, the ones that, that whose books you read and, and who's, who you hear on the radio, they get invited to be on talk shows. They're interviewed for magazines and, and uh, for newspapers. They write books. People ask them for their autograph. Man, how do you keep your ego in check? They're, they're, they're paid high sums of money to speak and they're put up in the best hotels. It would be difficult. When everyone around you is telling you how fabulous you are, even as a mature believer, to keep your ego in check, to be grounded in God's truth and God's word. Um, So then, in order to do that, you, you need to be grounded in God's truth and God's word. You need to be mature. Thirdly, James tells us, not too many of you should become teachers because teachers will be judged more strictly. Uh, And James includes himself in this. We who teach will be judged more strictly. And why is that? Well, first of all, because as I already alluded, teaching involves the tongue, the hardest part of the body to control. So teachers expose themselves to greater danger of judgment in a couple of ways. The more we speak, the more likely we are to say something we ought not say. My, my husband, who is very judicious with his speech, uh, much more judici- ju- judicious than his wife, um, loves this quote, "'Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt.'" <laughs> uh, and that is true. And, and in the case of teachers, if we say something we ought not say, if I say something I ought not say from up here, I may very well be leading somebody astray. I may very well be saying something That's false. And Jesus gave very, very harsh condemnation to those who would do such a thing. He says that if anyone would lead my children astray, it would be better for that person that a millstone, a huge stone, be tied around his neck and be thrown into the bottom of the sea. Wow. I better be careful about what I teach then. All teachers better be careful about what they teach. So James is saying that, but he's also saying that because teachers bear so much responsibility for the spiritual welfare of others, they will be scrutinized by God for that. And believe me, that is something that I never take lightly. And then the final reason why... James would tell not many people to become teachers is that perhaps there were too many people, perhaps there were people who should not become teachers that were trying to become teachers, people who were spiritually unqualified, who weren't grounded in God's word, people who were arrogant, who were just looking for that power and that prestige, people who wanted that influence rather than wanting to teach God's word. Um... And uh, indeed, these may have been the very same people as we're going to see in the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 that were starting quarrels within the church because of their immaturity and their arrogance. And then he says, we all fall down. Now, uninterpreted in here is the word for. He says, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly for or because we all stumble in many ways. The reason that has been left uninterpreted by most versions of the Bible, is that it doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to be connected. What do you mean we shouldn't become teachers because we all stumble in many ways? What James is saying here is this. He's saying that teachers are more susceptible to judgment because they engage in that activity which is hardest to keep from sin, our speech, our tongue. Now, the focus here... Is probably still on teachers, but this applies to all of us because we all stumble in many ways. And that stumbling in many ways means primarily the variety of the sin. We sin in lots of different ways, but it also means the frequency of sin. We also stumble often and in many ways. Uh, And words are particularly hard to control. Um, and once they're out, it's too late. How many times have I regretted something that I just wish I could <laughs> and put back in? When our kids are little, we did Focus on the Family, came out with this sort of family night thing. We did a little thing with them that was about words, but we didn't, you don't tell them that ahead of time. And we gave them each a tube of toothpaste, and we said, squirt it all out. And, oh, how much fun is that? And just get it you know, flying all over the place. And then we said, okay, that's great. You've got your little you know, pile of toothpaste there. Now put it back in. And we let them struggle with that for a while. You can't. You can't, can you? And the same is true with words. When they're sp- So be careful what you say. Because once they're out there, they can't be taken back. You can apologize. You can say, I'm sorry. But words have such power, such power to hurt and wound. And you feel those wounds. I will tell you the one thing my husband said to me in 28 years that wounded me the most. I've forgiven him for it but I still remember it. Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. So then he's going to give us these analogies on the tongue in in, uh, verses 3 through 5. He says, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So he talks about these bits and rudders. Bits and rudders are are small things. Uh, And his point is that very small implements control the direction and course of much larger things. A, A bit is like this. A horse is huge. A rudder is small in comparison to a ship. And he says, likewise, the tongue is small, but it has tremendous impact on our spiritual condition. Just, just as the bit controls the direction of a horse and a rudder controls the direction of a ship, our tongues can set the direction for our lives, either toward God and his will or away from God and his will. And and I love two things about this ship analogy because it's really important to get these. They are are driven by, even though they are driven by strong winds, they can still be steered. That word for strong um, is this word scleros, and it means hard, rough, or cruel. They're driven by cruel winds. Our tongues set our course in the midst of life's cruelties at times when controlling our speech is the most difficult our tongues do that it is hard to control your tongue but it is still our choice we have free will over them look what else he says about this ship it can steer the the rudder can steer it wherever the pilot wants it to go We're the pilot over our tongue, as hard as it is. And so once again, we are not hapless victims of our tongues. Once again, James is laying the responsibility for our own actions, our own words directly at our own feet. We are responsible for what we say. Now, what does this mean here when he says that the tongue makes great boasts? That isn't our boasting that he's talking about, that we boast about ourselves. It is the tongue itself that is boasting. The tongue can legitimately boast of its own power, uh, its own influence over our lives. And then he gives this imagery of a spark and a flame. See what a great fire is started by just a, a spark. Uh, a spark is also a small thing, but it leads to something much larger, a huge fire. But in this thought, James is also introducing a new idea, and that is the destructive power of the tongue. Because fires, when they're under control, fires when they're in your fireplace are a beautiful thing. When they're in your living room, they're not. They're a destructive thing. And this is the issue that he'll address now. But before we move on to that, I just want to read to you this quote by Douglas Moo. He says, we find in this half verse uh, about a spark and a fire an advance in James's argument, not only does the tiny tongue like the bit in rudder possess power all out of proportion to its size, it also has the potential to bring disaster like the spark in a dry forest fire. So in verses 6 through 8, he's going to, going to begin, actually 6 through 12, he's going to begin to talk about this destructive force uh, of the fire. And he begins in verse 6. He says, the tongue is also, also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So this is, this is he abandons simile. It's like this, it's like that. No, the tongue is a fire. He goes for a very strong metaphor. Now, in the NIV, it says the tongue also is a fire. That word is, should actually be interpreted and. And so it should say, and the tongue is a fire. Let's, let's follow James's thought there. He's strengthening his point from James 5 here. In James 5, he says, "'Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a spark.'" and the tongue is a fire. Um, there, uh, you could paraphrase this, and yes, the tongue really is a fire. It really has that much destructive force. Now, the rest of this verse is really difficult to translate, because it has five nouns and one verb. You try controlling five nouns with only one verb, especially when it's written in Greek. By the way, I got a uh, a birthday present from my sister. It's called the, Ascension, uh, the Essentials of New Testament Greek. I am so excited. There is no other way, no better way to prove that I am a complete nerd than the way I jumped up and down when I got this book, The Essentials of New Testament Greek. Someday, when I read these words, I'm actually going to know how to pronounce them. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited about this, but I don't have time to read it just, just yet. Um, so it's very difficult to translate but let's begin with translating this term a world of evil, that it is a world of evil among the parts of the body. That word, rule, world, is cosmos. Cosmos, that makes sense, doesn't it? So, you know, universe. So, but it usually in scripture means the, um, <clears throat> means the spiritual world or the fallen sinful world, the world that has set itself up against God. So it's a spiritually negative term. So if we take a world of evil to mean that, then, then the probable best uh, translation of this is, is this, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is appointed among our parts of the body or our members as the world of unrighteousness staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of its, its existence. In other words, what James is saying is that by being the most difficult part of the body to control, the tongue becomes a conduit of much of the sin that that we commit. Uh, The tongue is responsible for much of our sin. No other part of the body wreaks such havoc on our lives and others' tongues on our own lives. Uh, and the source of this destructive fire, James tells us, is hell itself, Satan. Satan loves it that we can't control our tongues. So now he's going to go on and give evidence that this has been, that, that the source of this, uh, this destruction is hell. In verses 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Um, So uh, this is the evidence that, that the tongue is a fire from hell. Because as a fire is difficult to bring under control, so is the tongue. Um, And and that sort of destruction, that sort of evil destruction is is from hell itself. James here uses some creation imagery. And he reminds us in in talking about the, the birds and the reptiles and the sea creatures. And he reminds us that many of these creatures have been tamed by mankind. He reminds us as we learn in the creation account in Genesis that we have dominion over these animals, that we rule over these animals. There's a subtle irony that James is giving us in this, that man who has dominion over the entire animal kingdom cannot rule over his own small tongue, even though he has dominion over all of creation. And then he calls our tongues a restless, poisonous evil. That word restless literally means unstable. And it's the same word that James used to describe the, the double-minded person in James 1.18, where he says that the double-minded man is unstable in all he does. And James is probably wanting to, ex, to emphasize not just the difficulty of taming the tongue, but also the instability and lack of single-mindedness that characterizes the tongue. Because that's the point he's about to make, that out of the same mouth comes praise God and curse you. Uh, and that ought not be. In verses 9 through 12, James writes this. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So this idea of doubleness that we've seen throughout James, shows up here now. And, and remember that word double-minded, literally meaning double-souled, double is this, this word deipsychos. And, and it's, it's this doubleness, this idea that um, one who is trying to please God and please the world, please the flesh, please the sinful nature at the same time. And in this case that double-mindedness that double-souledness if you will is reflected in one who would praise God and with the same tongue curse or denigrate God's people God's children. And the one they are cursing whether believer or not is one made in God's image. One a person that God loves And created just as surely as he did me. And yet, I am cursing, I am denigrating, I am abusing with my speech that person, my sisters, that ought not be. Our mouths are to be single-minded, full of grace and truth, just as Jesus was. Dr. Moose says, Christians who have been transformed by the Spirit of God should manifest, should show, should demonstrate the wholeness and purity of heart in consistency and purity of speech. If we are single-minded in our faith, it should be reflected in how we speak. And then James gives this series of illustrations about a spring and a fig tree and a grapevine and all that. And all of them have the same point. His point is the same in all of them. That just as a fresh spring cannot produce salt water, just as the fig cannot produce olives, just as the grapevine cannot produce figs, so a pure heart cannot produce false, bitter, harmful speech. And then verse 12 is the converse. Conversely... Bad things don't bring, produce good things either. A dead tree doesn't produce anything. Uh, bad things do not produce good things. So we have this word, dysychos, this double-souled uh, word. And, and what James is saying is that one who is double and inconsistent with regard to the things of God, in his heart, will be double and inconsistent with his speech as well. But ladies... <laughs> The problem isn't our tongues so much as it is our hearts. And that's where we get down, where the rubber meets the road, and we get down to application. We need to be changed from the inside out. In James 4, we're going to read this. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How do we do that? By drawing near to God. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said to a brood of vipers. Those who think that Jesus was just sweet and nice all the time haven't actually read the Gospels. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The reason we say those things is because they're in here. With my apologies to those of you who have heard this story and some of you multiple times, Years and years ago, when I was pregnant with Josh, I had this deep fear. Because, you know, you go to the birthing classes, and they show you the films. They shouldn't show you the films. You know how I watched the C-section film like this? Oops, sorry, I didn't even do it. That's how I watched the C-section film. Guess who had three C-sections? Yeah, maybe I should have watched the film. Uh, <laughs> that's the way Josh, or the way Jeff watched it, too. But when I was pregnant with Josh, I had this severe fear that was brought on to me by the films, where the women cussed the men out. And I remember uh, confessing to my friend, Stan Parker, that I was really afraid that when it came down to the event, you know, I was going to turn to Jeff and as Bill Cosby says, his wife said, you did this to me (laughs) and call him names and be awful to him. And, And Stan so wisely looked at me and said, Amy, that won't come out of your mouth because it's not in your heart. And if it's not in your heart, it won't come out of your mouth because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do you wanna know what happened? I never actually tell the full story of Josh's birth to anyone who hasn't had children because I'm really sure they'll decide not to have children. Uh, it, it It was rough, it was rough. And if not for modern medicine, neither of us would be here. So I'm very grateful for that. It was, an, it was an awful but very wonderful experience at the same time. And the only things that came out of my mouth, my husband was fabulous through all that. And at some point during the whole process when I was freaking out, uh, imagine that, the nurse was very wise to say, Amy, look at Jeff, look at Jeff. And the only things that came out of my mouth were, thank you, thank you. And then I puked into the pan he was holding. Thank you, I love you, thank you. That was all... That is all that came out of my mouth. Why? Because that's what was in my heart. And that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, ladies, there's also plenty of bad stuff in me that comes out, too, and sometimes directed at my dear husband. But we don't need like tongue training exercises, like some sort of chastity belt for the tongue. We don't need behavior modification for the tongue, like a rubber band like, or an electric shock. While you say that, you know, as shock yourself before you say something bad. We don't need that. What we need is intimacy with God. We need to become intimate with the one who made us. That is how we are changed. As I thought about this, I thought, you know, what would my marriage look like if I never spent time with Jeff? What has my marriage looked like in the times when I haven't spent time with Jeff? What if I never spoke to him? What if I never spent time alone with him? What if I never engaged him in any sort of intimate contact? I'm not just talking about sex, but just being time to be alone and be intimate with one another. Our marriage would be pretty lousy, wouldn't it? And I would have, my heart would have trouble committing itself to him and him alone. And in the same way, how can I possibly belong solely to God? How can my heart be fully committed to him if I am not in intimate fellowship with him? In order to be intimate with God, we need to spend time with him. Time spent in corporate and private worship time spent in corporate and private reading of God's Word, and time spent in corporate and private prayer. Prayer. I'm really good at sporadic prayer. If you ask me to pray, I will pray immediately. I may even say, let me pray for you now. I'm really good at praying when God says, hey, you need to pray for this person now. Okay, I will. I'm really good at praying for and with my son on our way to school every morning. What I'm not good at is what I would call date night type of praying. I crave date nights with my husband. My two love languages are physical touch and quality time. And so when I get quality time with Jeff, I love that. Time carved out intended solely for the purpose of connecting with him. What I'm bad at is date night prayer. Time carved out, intentionally made to spend time alone in prayer and and listening to God. I need to crave that same sort of quality of time with my Savior in prayer. And you know how I get there? By just doing it. By spending time in prayer that calls me and allows me to fall completely in love with Jesus Christ. Ladies, may our lives reflect such a single-minded devotion to God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for this reminder that you desire intimacy with us. Our tongues are impossible to control. And we'll never do it perfectly. But Father, as we grow in our understanding of you, as we grow in our intimacy with you, there will be more grace and less meanness in our speech. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies. See you next week.